U.S. Independence Day. Happy July 4th to my fellow Americans. It's a bittersweet holiday with what we've called out in my household, considering a giant step back for this country of freedom and opportunity with the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade and making it illegal to choose to abort their unborn fetus. There's two sides to everything. And this one topic in particular, there seems to be no middle ground. It's either you protect life 100% or you give the 100% freedom of choice to the parent. I'm damn near borderline Buddhist in how I value every single life. But my personal views are not when it comes to the cost of the parent's well-being. I'm proud to say that both Amazon, Cat's employer, and Epic Games, my employer, pay full costs for traveling and taking care of any medical needs to any employee who has to travel outside of their state. From what I gather, it's pretty much the entire West Coast and Nevada, aka the home of Sin City, most of the Northeast, with the exception of Pennsylvania, which was surprising to me. Michigan, Indiana, New Mexico, and Colorado are all still, as far as I know, legal and you have full choice on what you do. This is what happens when there's a key balance piece like the notorious Ruth Bader Ginsburg and she passes. Yeah, that was two years ago now. And then 45 appointed Amy Conan Barrett took her place. It seems to me that that's how long it takes to see the effects of change come. You can't help but to speculate ahead at what's to come. And you just know that same-sex marriage has got to be in their crosshairs. I'm guilty. I'm also watching Showtime series Billions. So this is definitely affecting my thoughts. But while it's a fictional drama... It makes me wonder at the nature of politics and the influence that money has in addition to paying for lobbyists that influence policy and eventually that's what gets topics up on a ballot to vote for. The same madness with gun laws and how many mass shootings it has taken to finally get a reform bill out of Congress in front of Biden and that's going through which increases background checks closes some loopholes and incentivizes states to individually pass their own further harsher laws. It's a small step, but that's the nature of policy and change in this country that I've seen in my lifetime. It's slow, but tiny steps make a difference. And also, as we've seen, they can be overturned in the future. It's precious. I just want to call out to never take any of our freedoms for granted and know that we got to keep pushing for change and progress because the second we get complacent, Bam, it's taken away. Big shout out to our neighbors to the north. Happy Canada Day. You know, that's always a possibility too. Just straight up leaving the United States and going to work for another country who has more progressive laws. And on a lighter note, July 4th is my father, Adriano Diaz's birthday. Feliz cumpleaños, papi. I love you. Thank you for making it happen with Mom Dukes and doing your part to bring me into this world and pass on your work ethic and hook me up with a solid education. Perhaps this audience will get to hear from you someday. Now, hit my music. On episode 36 of Out of Play Area, we fall out with Leon Cooperman, the CTO of Cast AI, who wrote his own Zork text adventures, got his start at IBM, founded a handful of companies, one purchased by Oracle, and who is now working to look ahead and keep the cloud a better place to do business. We talk about his passion in tech, coming from Ukraine to a family of engineers, his views on games, and the ways that his company at Cast AI is looking to make an impact. Please welcome, coming to us from Toronto, Canada, by way of Ukraine, Leon Cooperman. Let's fall the 
fuck out. Bienvenido, bienvenue, welcome to the Out of Play Area Podcast, a show by video game devs for game devs, where the guests open up one-on-one about their journey, their experiences, their views, and their ideas. No ads, no bullshit. Join us as we venture far out of the play area with your host, seasoned game designer, John Diaz. The one thing I do not know about you, Leon, that I'm super curious is, do you play games? If so, what were they? What was the first one that you played? Oh man, you're taking me back. The first game that I ever played was a textual adventure game called Zork, right? Where you literally, (laughs) there was no graphics. As soon as you said text adventure, I was like, he's going to say Zork. I was so fascinated by Zork. I bought this like shitty manual, how to build a text-based adventure game. I think when I was like 10 or 11, and all I had was an Apple IIe, but like didn't have a lot of computing power. And I spent, I think the whole summer writing text-based adventures. It was like the most fun I've had just coding for the fun of it. And that's really what drew me into computer science was gaming to begin with. It never tires me to hear that, right? Like this wide realm of computer science. And most universities never, ever take advantage of that curiosity, right? They kind of throw you down into logic and binary bits and and things like this. Well, I I guess you start out with like basic input and output, but tell me more about some of the cases that you wrote yourself for your text adventure. Oh, it was a classic nerdy D&D thing, you know, like, and then I evolved it from just plain text into a graphical interface of the dungeon itself. And so you have a little character that walks through the dungeon. I mean, gaming technology has evolved like centuries, you know, since I was playing around with code. And then I continue to love that genre. So there's kind of two genres of games that I really love. I love a real-time strategy. So I think the first real-time strategy game I played was Dune, like probably in the nineties, if I, if I had to guess. And then when my kids were growing up, we played Age of Empires like together. Yes. That was kind of like a amazing bonding experience. And then later I introduced them to Skyrim and all of the kind of the prequels. And like, that's kind of been, I really love the world that Bethesda Softworks has been able mm-hmm. to create. I know it took a lot of money effort and talent, but that game for me is something very special anyway. That's a great call out. Yeah. Now they're folded under the Microsoft umbrella, right? So I think they're, they're going to be steady and rolling for the foreseeable future. I really dug into kind of gaming from a machine learning perspective when the alpha start team put together their machine learning or artificial intelligence kind of version of their AlphaGo. You guys probably saw that documentary on Netflix, which was unbelievable where AlphaGo was able to beat the world champ in Go, which is an extremely complex game. Yes. And then they stepped it up a level by playing StarCraft and training the models in a very similar kind of tournament style winner takes all game. And I was recently interviewing a a data scientist, a machine learning prospect for us to hire. And we went really deep into that kind of algorithm, how they trained it. That for me is a fascinating field of machine learning because to be fair, they had to hamper the computer. In other words, they said, okay, well, like a human being can only have a specific field of view. They can't see the whole board. So let's limit the computer's field of view. Let's limit the number of actions per second to something what an average human can keep up with. Mm -hmm. They created all these restrictions and like races, they still can beat the world's best individual humans, which is very cool. Yeah, man. The the field of AI is amazing. And, And I definitely look forward to touching more about how you're leveraging AI at your company, Cast AI. The latest one I saw this year 
It's called Wukong AI. It's an evolution of that Google space where it just trains itself. It plays against itself, however many ludicrous numbers of hours to just figure out the strategy. And and yet, from a game development standpoint, we've always been trained as game designers that the best AI ends up being the best second place, like the best runner up. Kind of just gives you enough of an opening where you can still triumph and, and feel like a champion. But in these competitive esports environments, I can't imagine a better way to train, right? Like I'm, I'm sure a lot of the, the chess masters, the best ones have incorporated like a lot of strategy that I'm sure a computer kind of showed them that they thought was kind of not optimal. And now they kind of whip these things out. I think from a game development perspective, everyone looks at AI kind of as a, how do we get NPCs that are more human-like? Like, so they're not just roaming a, a very specific area in an in a infinite loop, but they actually yeah. have daily lives and they, you know, they go to their work jobs and they, you yeah, know, they, like, they like have, the Sims. Yep. Like the Sims. Yeah. And, and I think the closer that we get to kind of general AI and we're still ways off, but I think the more realistic, the non-player characters get in these game worlds. Even the popular Hollywood takes one of my favorite ones. I don't know. It's like a, I remember Scarlett Johansson did the voice. And, it, you know, that was such a great casting option and it was Joaquin Phoenix. And yeah, it was just like, wow, they learn how to cater to your ego. Right. And, and that's what we as men tend to love. Right. So want to cater to our ego. John, have you heard of this, the Turing test before? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that the gentleman was named Turing and it's like, this is the test at which you can no longer tell like, Hey, is this human or robot? Like, is that, is that kind of close? Yeah, so the scientist's name was Alan Turing. He was actually a heavy contributor into cracking Nazi codes in World War II. But he, he was a, a deep thinker in artificial intelligence before we could actually physically manifest computers to do what they do now. And he, yeah, he, he surmised this test where if you could put someone behind the kind of a wall and have a conversation, and you don't know if that conversation is a human or a robot or a computer, then that AI has been deemed to past the Turing test. And that's kind of the holy grail mm -hmm. for perceived general artificial intelligence. Indeed. The realm of AI. Yeah. I mean, like that's the buzzword. I think that's where all the funding tends to go these days. And I think that's what separates a lot of the the, uh, the big companies, right? Is how, how much they've had a chance to train their AI. What is it using like captchas now, right? Like that's how we're kind of going in and telling computers what images are what and helping them categorize all that. Most good machine learning folks can write an algorithm that will train against those. And even to the point where like, if you're asked to identify all of the railroads, that's not a very difficult machine learning problem to solve these days, right? So captures are pretty weak. The separation of humans and robots on the internet is a very difficult problem. It's something that I spent actually years at my last company trying to figure out and we were somewhat successful, but the problem is, is that when you're using robots as attackers in the cyber world. Yeah. You're going to be heavily incented to make those robots smarter and smarter and behave more and more like humans. Of course. Like the more they can spoof and fool people, the more lucrative the back end, I'm sure. And then and on the other end, the black market and security kind of go step in step generally, right? There's a lot of money to be made on the dark side, right? So hence that's where the funding comes from. Everything from state sponsored all the way to, you know, basically organized crime. Yeah. The attackers are very well capitalized and run like efficient businesses in many contexts. Mm -hmm. I heard you discuss how much you enjoy RTSs. And as I get to speak more with you, Leon, I could have an appreciation for 
your logical mind and being able to, you know, control or direct or strategize an entire play field to some victory condition. I have to ask if you've ever considered getting into development or has anyone ever approached you from the development side? Of course, it's been like a deep hidden fantasy that I would never vocalize uh, <laughs> to anyone. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they think I'm crazy, but yeah. I would love to have the free time to work on the creative end of game development. I think it's a young person's game for a lot of reasons. You have to have the stamina and energy. The coding hours are just insane. And I'm probably kind of beyond that level where I can do 16 hours a day of coding. But maybe there's a future where I can participate on, at least on the creative game development side, and maybe help with some of the difficult computer science problems that haven't yet been cracked. I definitely see an opportunity there, man. Your company and and the things you work on being able to be a huge leverage point for a lot of us on the other end, building, you know, whatever you want to call it, right? Metaverses, shared worlds, things like this. If I were to give you the best of the best, right? The designers, artists, engineers, full team at your disposal, let's say two, three year runway funding and all that. What would you build? This is going to sound crazy, John, but I would try to build an immersive experience that breaks the player out of physically sitting in front of a computer and maybe even wearing an Oculus. Like, I think those constraints are severe. I believe that there's a gaming mechanism that puts you as close to a reality as possible. Let me give you an example. Like we were just at Universal Studios maybe a month and a half ago in Florida. Mm -hmm. And I went on this Harry Potter experience. And so these rides now incorporate a complete three-dimensional screen. Like you're completely immersed in the screenware. Yeah. You are also on a physical ride. So at some point, it's just visually tricking your mind into believing that you're taking a physical drop. Yes. They are incorporating heat. So there's blasts, like when that dragon blows fire, you feel it. Mm-hmm. They're incorporating water and all these tactile elements into the riding experience. And why can't that be done for a gaming experience? Yeah. As an example, why can't you really get onto a space shuttle as a flight simulator and experience a star mission in the confines of like a Star Trek-like you know, rover yeah. or whatever it is? And, and I've noticed that the ride experiences are getting there. Mm-hmm. I think the, there's room for, the, for gaming to move in that physical direction as well. I love the ambition. I love the forward thinking, taking what we have on the horizon with AR and VR and the confines of our living rooms and and moving in a step towards these massive theme parks, right? Just that tactile stimulus that we currently lack. Even the the smells is always a fun one to, to bring up. I like it. You got into computer science early. Was that something that came from your family or just the curiosity through games? Can you tell me more about how you yes. stumbled into comp science? I came from a, like a STEM family, meaning my mom is electrical engineer by trade. My dad is a mechanic. My brother went into mechanical engineering. I mean, computer science didn't exist when they were going through their education. I still remember my brother was at Ryerson. Uh, it's a school here in Toronto. And he had a software class. I think it was Pascal was the programming language. Yeah, that was like the first one. Yeah not exactly, but very, it was way early. Right. And I remember like he did his homework on punch cards and I had to do like help him with his homework on the punch cards. And that was fascinating to me. And we had a computer at home. We could write the code. 
they're on our Apple, but the, the school needed it on the lab. Yeah. So engineering and math was always a part of the family. I think I got the entrepreneurship piece from the family for sure. And then I got the, the love and interest of science from my family. And then it just naturally evolved into computer science when uh, maybe when the first time I went to Radio Shack, I don't like I, the first time Radio Shack. I saw, I saw a computer, I was like just fascinated by it. And then it becomes the 10,000 hour thing. Like if you're eight, nine, 10, and this new tech appears and you just dive into it for endless number of hours, you just can't help but come out of it being a subject matter expert, mm-hmm. you know, 25 years later or whatever it is. Yeah, you were even well ahead of the game, right? Like, I'm sure everything that was thrown at you academically or in a curriculum, you were already well, well in front of. I don't think I really studied until third year computer science. I think first and second year were part of years for me because there was nothing really of interest to deal with in the exams or in the assignments. But third year in operating systems, it started to get a little bit interesting. Started studying. Ah, okay. What what was it about operating systems? Was it kind of like, memory manipulation or registries and things like that it's a hands-on course you build an operating system through the semester so you build a file system you build a memory manager you build a cpu slicer and then it kind of comes all together by the end of the year man i have to ask leon because i find this paradigm super interesting these days right like you have the people that come from traditional engineering comp sci backgrounds and then kind of this other wave of people that come up more vocational tech, like pure game development, right? Where it's just like day one, it's like, here's Unity or Unreal, and then we're building a game. And a lot of us came from pure traditional logic and architecture and object-oriented programming, and then found an outlet into like, okay, this is how we can build interactive experiences through here, right? Curious what your thoughts are on having that deep, low-level knowledge as opposed to the other end of it, right? Like, hey, just tell me what I need to know to to do the thing, right? Or, hey, I have an API that can do all the heavy lifting for me. I just need to know how to hook in. When I interview people for even software engineering positions, as an example, and I'm not going to pick on the .NET community, but like like (laughs) the, the Microsoft Visual Studio kind of .NET or even before C Sharp, it was Visual Basic and like, those are prepackaged universes of their own. You don't got to know a lot, you know, to start and be productive. And I always try to figure out what is the motivation of the person not to dig deeper, right? Don't you want to know how things work? Like, are you content being in a bubble? How does Unity do the things it does? Where's the magic come from? You don't <laughs> have to build those algorithms every time, but at least understand the building blocks, right? So how many of those vocational like game developers know what a transistor is? Wow. Know why a transistor changed the world of computers, like why we couldn't do things before we discovered what a semiconductor was. Why couldn't we build computing power that we have today? And I bet you, if you ask a lot of folks, they just don't know. Sure. But that's lost tribal knowledge. Like, yeah, dangerous. If you ask that question to like even a non-technical person, like if you ask Bill Gates, who I don't think is a super technical guy, you know, he's a business person, how does the transistor work? I think he would be able to tell you, right? And yeah, he was there early enough. Yeah, so like I think there's a whole bunch of tribal knowledge that we've lost and it's sad right? because if you have the curiosity and the background to dig into those things, those are the foundation of later ideas totally. and the depth of your knowledge really makes a difference into how you think about the future. One billion percent. I love your frame of thinking there. 
And I want to emphasize that, right, is, yeah, there's ways to get off to the races and get prototypes put together and things like that. But the underlying technology hasn't changed, right? It's just kind of gotten stronger, more powerful, right? But knowing what a transistor does, why does that give you so much capabilities? I, another common one I like to tell people is polygons and rendering triangles, right? Why is that the chosen way that we go about drawing things to the screen? Why does a computer really understand three points in a space, right? Or, or the limits of a plane. And then being able to build on that, like this is how lighting plays into that. And this is how things look more natural. And, and this is how you can optimize these graphics renderers and GPUs to really pump out that blurred reality, right? Like now you see a lot of these simulations and you're like, man, that looks amazing. Is it just more powerful hardware or is it a better understanding at the lowest level that we can now take better advantage of it? I think a lot of the advances that we have now are abstractions of APIs, right? So from the hardware all the way through to the gaming API, mm -hmm. but you tend to lose resolution every time you go up a level in the stack, right? Yes. And someone else has made a technical decision for you at that lower level. Maybe those are great decisions and those should be the right decisions, but at least be aware of them. Absolutely. 100%, right? Like when it comes to these kind of second to second or to the frame, right? Games, we're bound to that frame, right? If we get 60 of them in a second, you got to optimize these things. And, and these worlds where now you're getting into the hundreds of players online, anything that's off, you know, you can blame it on internet or, or latency or something like that. But if you can figure out the most minimum amount of data that you're transferring over the web, right? To kind of get those dependencies down, the higher you can go, right? The farther you can push it as, as you go. I think when you start introducing multiplayer, it's a massively distributed, hard computing science problem, right? You have action that's local and you have action that's in the real gaming world that's on the server. And how do you reconcile things as your connection lags? What are the elements of the network that you need to use in order to make sure that you can eventually do a full reconciliation of mm -hmm all of the universes that are playing simultaneously. It's a super hard computer science problem. It's a very difficult one to solve. Well, you know, it's not a secret. Game developers, we're expert sleight of hand manipulators, right? We, we cheat as, as much as we can. We cut as many quarters as we can just to always cater to the player, right? Like, hey, well, what does it matter at the end of the day? What's the key thing players want to experience? And so here we are. We're talking about the web. We can't talk about the web without talking about cloud. Tell me about your role, where you are at today and your company. We started Cast AI just a couple of years ago. So that's the company and it's solving a specific, in one sense, it's solving a very specific computer science problem around cloud economics. In another sense, it has a much broader vision. So let me explain. The first step we took was in previous startups, we had failed pretty badly in cost management. Like everything else was great, but the cost side of the equation when we were deploying to AWS specifically was a disaster. And I could never get the kind of cost of goods sold model in my last startup, organized properly so that as we scaled customers into the thousands, mm -hmm. the, the cost model would scale appropriately. Was that a slow burn of like, you know, month over month, you're seeing these, these ticks or was it like a, it's easy to miss kind of thing. And then you're kind of paying before you know it. From when we started the last company, it was like a few thousand, we started a few thousand dollars a month for the basic infrastructure. We we're probably close to half a million bucks by the time we'd sold the business. So like multiple orders of magnitudes, rising costs that was with, with reserved instances and all kinds of savings plans. Like we tried everything and what 
saved us is, is that the, the company that acquired the technology or the company was Oracle. Oracle had its own infrastructure, so cost of goods sold wasn't a problem. We just moved everything into Oracle data centers and cost went virtually to zero. Like we would have had to have solved that problem very quickly because as your market momentum grows, the customers get bigger. As your customers get bigger, the traffic increases and you're paying dearly for that traffic if it's not well-optimized, if the costs aren't well-optimized. So the continuation of that thought process was cast. And I'm like, okay, I can't be the only guy who hasn't figured this out. Sure enough, I'm not because our customers all feel this pain 100%. Mm-hmm. So we made a couple of bets, John. We said, okay, number one, we think that applications, and maybe you can chime in on this on the gaming side. I'm not sure this is a trend in gaming yet, but we believe that all like business applications are going to be deployed in these things called containers or containerized units, right? So Docker containers, mm-hmm. and they'll be made up of a set of microservices. So you'll have services that represent different functional parts of the system instead of a single monolithic application. And if that's true, then there needs to be an orchestration platform for all of these containers and their life cycles and how they live. And so we believe that system of record will be Kubernetes, which I can explain if, if listeners aren't familiar with it, or some cousin of Kubernetes, but it will be that system that ends up being dominant in the industry, especially for business apps. And if those things are true and we're so short on human beings, then the logical conclusion was, we need to have an autonomous system for all of this lifecycle management. We can't have infrastructure managed by people anymore. So we make way too many human decisions for infrastructure provisioning. And the goal of CAST is to take all of that away mm-hmm. and to automate that robotic process automation or through AI. Give it to the machines. Heck yeah, that's what they do best. Crunch numbers. Tell me where I'm failing. Absolutely. So that's the premise for CAST. And so we have three pillars of platform. And the first part of the platform that we went to market with is the cost optimization piece, which is my most acute pain previously. So the cost optimization piece basically allows our system as a SaaS model, software as a service, to plug into a customer's Kubernetes cluster in any one of the three major clouds, Amazon, Google, or Azure. And first report on where the cost waste is, so where the resources are wasted. And then given permission, it'll start taking action to optimize the cluster And then within a few hours, you're running on a cluster that's 40, 50, 60% cheaper than where you were before you started. I've seen Kubernetes, right? Like Docker came on the scene and it was just like, that's all you saw AWS pivoting to over the past handful of years, right? And so the expectations is Kubernetes, everything. It seems like if you build it off of Kubernetes, you can run a report and then see your savings. And you may say, hey, Leon, why, why did you pick Kubernetes? Why not just generally optimize cloud instances, bare metal? And so it's too nebulous. John. Like mm-hmm. if, if you say, hey, we'll, we'll just tackle everything, you're really tackling nothing. So I love Kubernetes because it's like a game board. It's like a StarCraft board. Like you've got actors, and you've got actions that those actors can take, and there are rules of engagement. And if you follow those rules, you can teach a computer to follow those rules and you can teach a computer to optimize the outcome. Kubernetes is the game board in this context. Jeez, man, you, you got me interested now, right? Like I, at the time I was like, okay, not my cup. I'll let some backend engineers worry about this and tell me what I need to know. But now you got me interested, Leon. I, I'm going to go check out what 
applications of Kubernetes may overlap with the types of things we do in games. You provide a report service that you point it to your cluster and it'll tell you what you need to know. Yeah, it's it's 100% free and always be free. And here's the reason why we do that, John, is because if someone's getting, let's say, weekly value, they're getting a weekly report emailed to them about the state of their cluster and all their computers and how utilized they are, and which teams are sucking up all the resources, a really nice in-depth report, including some best practices. I'm getting their data every 15 seconds our agent is streaming the data. So it's not altruistic. Yeah, we want to give value and we want people to, to perceive that value and get it for free. But we're also getting something out of that equation, which is we're getting their data and we're getting it in the most unique perspective across three clouds. I don't think anyone. So like if we're in 10,000, 100,000 clusters, like, you know, within a year from an entrepreneur's perspective, you try to build these moats to moat around the castle. Yeah. That's our moat. Like, Data is our mode. It's going to be hard to build those models. Even if Google wakes up tomorrow and says, hey, that guy Leon had a good idea. Let's copy. It's going to be hard because you don't have the data from the other clouds. Like you're, You don't have a holistic view the way we're positioning ourselves to have. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And I guess that's one big advantage as well is that because it's Kubernetes, right, and all the clouds have hook into, have Kubernetes on their, on their infrastructure, your service kind of jumps across the, all three of them and and finds where the savings are to be had, independent of cloud. Independent of cloud. They, most customers aren't in a place where they can leverage two, three clouds at the same time. It's just too futuristic for most customers of mine. Yeah. But that will come. Like We already have an offering that allows you from a disaster recovery perspective to create a cluster that exists in two places simultaneously. That's big. It is, except there's a couple of unnatural blockers. Uh, and I'll tell you what they are. One is the customer mindset. Ah, I just can't get my head around being in AWS and Google. That's, that's yeah. one. The second one is this nasty thing called egress costs. And everyone, 100% of your game developers feel this and pay for it. So the... What, what is an egress cost? So what is clouds allow your data to stream in to the cloud at zero cost, zero dollars, stream uh, as much as you want. As soon as data leaves the cloud, like yeah. let's say you're serving a video or an image or HTML or a JSON file, mm -hmm. you pay, you, the account owner pay for that data to leave and you pay about nine cents per gig. But now imagine you're running a massively multiplayer game that's just got a little bit of data from every player streaming mm. to the tunes of a, maybe a couple of gigabytes an hour. All mm. of a sudden, your egress costs are going to be your number one cost of running that game, especially if you have a freemium model where your users may not be paying anything. They may just be having a good time. Yeah, yeah. That's something that I wanted to touch on. I'm glad you brought it up is a lot of developers, I think if you're starting and you're looking into the space, hey, you want to be online. You're not going to worry about building your own little racks and, and, and maintaining the power and backing those up and everything, right? This is where the cloud came in. It, it makes sense. Hey, go to the cloud. It's cheaper. You don't have to worry about it. But as you experienced in your previous companies, when you get to that sweet problem of having a ton of players, it can happen overnight, right? Hits happen, something, a tweet or some stream goes viral. And then all of a sudden your game has hundreds of thousands of not millions of more players than you anticipated because things are in the cloud they will scale up and like you said so will your costs they'll balloon and worse yet if you're operating on ad revenue and the number of eyes that see your thing or the few people that are paying for it you 
could still very well get into a place where you haven't adjusted your numbers and your costs are more than what you're making, right? Yeah. It's, I've seen horror stories of folks that have like used like function as a service or some of the cloud databases where either a developer makes a mistake or there's just a balloon in traffic and then the bill comes. Like, I mean, those are extreme cases, but like, sure, you know, sure. And I don't want to scare folks, like just put your safeguards in place to make sure you don't scale infinitely, but you're right. In my business, cost of goods sold is a for, for software as a service. That is the number one driver. So a gross margin, what we call gross margin, it's what you collect versus what you have to pay for those services, right? Mm -hmm. So it should be around 80 to 90% for a healthy software as a service business. And then most of your money goes to acquiring new customers. Mm -hmm. And that's how you scale. That's how you grow. I'm assuming the, the game world has a very similar kind of macroeconomics where you want your cost of goods sold to be fairly low and you spend your ad revenue acquiring new gamers, right? acquiring new, new yeah. players. Yeah, that's and, what it is for sure. And if you are not smart about cloud economics, AWS, Google, or whatever can eat your lunch, literally eat your lunch. And what's interesting is, and your listeners probably experienced this, when they first start, you can enter these startup programs in any one of the three clouds and you'll get credits. Like we personally got a $300,000 credit, you know, I don't even know if I'm supposed to say it, but Google's not listening. Like we got a $300,000 credit to Google to start. Guess what? We blew through that in a year, right? And then what? Right. Like, right? And now what are you going to do? Yeah. If you're not ready for the cloud, you're going to get a very strong cloud economics lesson. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. I mean, at the, at the very minimum, right? There's like alarms and watches to set up, right? To auto notify and, you know, make sure you're getting those, you're, you're paying someone that's keeping an eye on those things to avoid these surprises, right? To at the very least have something very loud and in your face to let you know, hey, this is crossed over whatever threshold you've set. John, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a unkept secret about those alarms. Well, they batch up overnight. So your bill gets calculated nightly. Yeah. So if you start with a bad piece of code that does a huge overrun at 2 p.m., you ain't going to know about it until tomorrow. Oh my gosh. So you have to calculate, you have to alarm on your usage metrics, not on your dollars. So what I mean by that is if like, for example, you're in AWS and you're using CloudWatch, set alarms and triggers on your traffic, the traffic itself, right? Because mm -hmm. you're going to get built for that. Set alarms and triggers on the computers that you're using, the, the servers, because those are the things that will ultimately yield to the lead to the build. But the CUR, the what's called cost report usage and reporting module, yeah. it does a it does a, a crappy batch thing overnight. Oh man, that's a pro tip. That's well worth the price of admission right here. Do you set up your alarms on the usage, not on the dollar amount? And then you'll catch it much sooner than when it's too late. That's awesome. Like our customers, like we we emit something called Prometheus scriptable metrics. These are just time series data that we, we update in our platform every 15 seconds. So what our customers do is they connect their monitoring systems to our metrics and they, they continuously scrape them. Mm -hmm. And then within a minute or two, you will know exactly where the costs have gone. And then they use that to pin a team down and say, Hey guys, you had a bad deployment. You just ballooned this cost 20 X or whatever. Let's roll it back. 
I'd like to talk a little bit about opportunities that you help to point out. The very little cloud education I have, right, in my time over at Amazon was the early opportunities to be had regarding on-demand instances to then reserved instances, right, kind of you're paying in advance so they can sell that to you cheaper. And then at the very low end of the spectrum, spot instances, right? Like the things that are like excess and too volatile for anyone to really take advantage of. That's why you kind of get a great deal on them. But the big secret is they were great for games, right? Great for these less than 10 minute sessions, 15 minute sessions, right? Where hosts are constantly migrating, right? If you have a 50 on 50 thing, someone gets killed, the host jumps over to someone else, right? Those, what do you call it? Like, I don't know what, some of them have like two minute warnings where it's like, hey, this this thing is going down, right? Someone needs it now, so we're going to take it from you. It was perfectly suited to game developers, right? Like spot instances. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's what, they have a service called GameLift that helps kind of, you know, as a service around it and gives you an opportunity to get first in that. Again, it will always pale in comparison to you spinning it up for yourself, right? Again, empowering people to learn what they're doing so they could write it for themselves as opposed to kind of rely on AWS's service to, to tell you, right? But what, what, what opportunities does cast leverage for, for people? Yeah, so I think GameLift is a great bundled service. Obviously, mm -hmm. there's a pricing model and you pay for the extra features. Like and it's got a whole bunch of stuff that's really tailored towards the gaming community. So kudos to those guys for packaging it, seeing the, the need and packaging it that way. And they do use like spot instances under the covers. So I, we have to, it would be interesting. Like I have to do some research to see how effective would it be to deploy a real time game inside of Kubernetes because Kubernetes does, it's, it's pretty low latency network. Like, I mean, you basically get the bare network of the machines, but yeah. there, you know, but there's some container runtime overhead and you, you are run, you're not running on bare metal. You are running in a container image in a pod. So it would be interesting to see if someone has successfully, I, I suspect the answer is yes, because Kubernetes or K8s is the acronym, has this really nice feature called HPA or horizontal pod autoscaling. What that means is, is as you get more players in the door, for example, like as they're queuing up, the system will automatically spin instances of the game services that you need. Yeah. And then as the queue empties, it'll automatically shut them down. Under the covers, the infrastructure that it's running on can be elastic. It can scale up and scale down. Now, the, the AWS gaming service, the GameLift service, has that kind of auto-scaling capability and they've kind of tied that in spot instances. So I would say it's a specialized version for mm -hmm. the gaming community. So what we do with spot instances, is it's a very interesting kind of freakonomics problem. Let, let me explain what I mean, John. When we look for to add a, a node into a cluster in Kubernetes, if the workload itself is tolerant of being interrupted. And what I mean by that is like, if the process can get a signal that says, Hey, I, I need to kill you, but you're going to get spun up somewhere else. So that's mm -hmm. your kind of analog of moving like the, the, the game node from server A to server B. So if those workloads are, are interrupt tolerant, we handle the lifecycle of the spot instance for our customers. You mentioned a couple of other business model. So maybe before I go into deep into the spot instances, let me give you my two cents on like kind of where I think those pricing models are and where a customer, like, like a developer should be thinking about those pricing models. Please. On demand, on demand was the first and probably the most transparent model. It's pay as you go. I need a computer for a couple hours. I rented it $2 an hour. Cool. I paid four bucks. I'm done. 
And then customers starting to come to the cloud and saying, well, these things are getting really expensive. What do we do? So what did the cloud say? Very smart because it's a, it's a, it's a lock-in protocol. Yeah, like I want these customers model, yeah. locked in, right? So exactly, John. So they say, all right, well, commit to us for two years, a year, three years, and we'll give you a 50% discount or 40% discount. But in the early days of AWS, you were committing to a specific processor family. You were saying like, I'm committing to the M4 family, which is a specific Xeon chipset under the covers. What, what happens in three years of your commitment? Well, according to Moore's law, we double our processing power every 18 months. Therefore we have our costs every 18 months. Yes. So you're committing to a pricing model that's going to be obsolete in 18 months. Uh, so, so I look at reserved instances as an evil, it's a necessary evil. But it's an evil we, we, we want to try to eliminate. And then, so the last kind of like what I consider the most market driven discount available to users is the spot instance. And if you can learn to deal with the chaos, if your application can handle the interruption, which we help with, then you're in the best position to, 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 to take advantage of the highest discounts. And so what are the problems with spot instance? The first one you mentioned already, John, which is two minutes notice, get off the machine, we're killing it. Right? So that's a mm -hmm. hard problem to deal with. That's where Kubernetes helps us, frankly, help the customer because we've got some elegant ways of draining the workloads off the machine and getting them replaced into a different place within mm -hmm. two minutes. By the way, only 7% of AWS users take advantage of spot instances. 7%. For wow. For, for that exact reason. We play this other interesting parlor trick when we were going to reserve capacity. So we, we have a copy of the AWS's, we scrape all of the inventory and pricing every couple of minutes. And so we know when prices fluctuate because they do, it's a marketplace. When demand is high, prices go up. When demand is low, prices go down. But they're different for different instance types. So you may have this really weird computer shape that no one ever uses. I'll give you an example. INF1, these are called inferential processors. No one's ever heard of them. Fairly few people use them, but they're super cheap because no one ever uses them. Are they like for like computer learning or something? They're used for inference, right? So this, mm. the, the second part of machine learning, like once you have a model built and you want to infer, you know, the hot dog, not hot dog problem on, so <laughs> when you want to infer hot dog, not hot dog, you use an inference process. And so you could use that processor to speed things up and make it cheaper. Problem is no one uses them. It's an SDK. No one installs the SDK, et cetera, et cetera. But they're super cheap machines right now. So we see those spot instances are often a lot cheaper than the regular C5 family or an M5 family at AWS, yeah. the most order. So we have this freakonomics nature. We'll get a computer with SSDs, the super fast network card, extra processors. We pay less money. And yeah. then when that processor goes away or the, the family goes away, we just replace it with something else. And we're continuously doing that. So I guess the bottom line is you have to be pretty sophisticated about your kind of inventory management of what's Jeez. available in the marketplace in order to make the best possible use of spot instances in the market. Gotcha, gotcha. This makes total sense now, Leon, when you're talking about building your molt, right? Like seeing well in advance and getting the data on what ten, you know, what's the patterns in what machines are not used and when and, and how and, and being able to kind of spot that well in advance of other people and, and being able to kind of give that that savings right to the to the end customer. 100%. That's the goal, right? Is, is to get people's cloud costs down. And frankly, I think all the clouds will benefit from it. This is why I think they're pretty appreciative of our service. If we can get everyone's cloud costs down, that leaves more resources for next generation to migrate. More departments in every company start migrating. And we don't get this backlash of, 
hey, this costing is too hard to figure out. Let's just go back to our own data centers. That was easy. Cast AI, two years young, already making pretty good strides and then getting people's cloud bills down. You mentioned that you have a few pillars you have your eyes on as you move forward. Can you talk to us about the next, the next venture in Cast AI? Yeah, the, the, absolutely. I'll tell you about all three of them. I, I, I don't believe in like a secretive development. I mean, I'll tell, <laughs> you know, like the best martial artists can, can like, there's this guy in jujitsu, his name is Gordon Ryan. He's the, you know, probably the number one grappler in the world right now. And he'll come to like these big tournaments against high level professional fighters. And he'll tell them, I'm going to submit you this way. I, I, once he gave the rep, like a little piece of paper said, open it after the match, it'll have this, <laughs> the submission on it. That's so like, like, you know, so he's just super, so I, I'm not going to, like, I'm going to tell roll? people. Do you roll? Oh, yeah, I roll. Absolutely. Oh, fantastic, man. And, and so again, you know, is that a family thing? Uh, your family hails from, from the Ukraine, from Ukraine. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Things are still terrible over there. If there's any way that you know of that listeners can help, please let us know. John, you bring up a really good point. So, so I was born in Odessa, which is the Southern city in the Ukraine. It's on the Black Sea. That's where the kind of the Southern amphibious assault is, is kind of occurring. Yeah. Yuri, my business partner, also born in Odessa. I don't have the accent because I was young. He does. So <laughs> we talk about it all the time, but we're doing a program right now for engineers that are currently living in the Ukraine that want to leave and are looking for a way to get out. And we're both kind of refugees from that former Soviet Union system. So we understand how difficult it is to get out and get your feet on the ground. So we're offering folks, we'll take you through a remote loop, meaning we'll interview you remotely. We'll, you know, we'll do the coding exercise with you. And if we offer you a job, we'll offer you relocation to Vilnius, which is in Lithuania. It's, we have a development center there. We're going to pay for three months of housing for the developer and the family. And we're going to help take care of all the paperwork to the immigration, the visas, the lawyers, all of that is daunting and overwhelming. So yeah. we're going to try to make it as easy as possible for folks that want to leave and start their lives elsewhere. We're going to try to help there. Fantastic, Leon. Way to give back to the, uh, to the roots, man. Heck yeah. yeah. It's, it's I, not a hundred percent altruistic. I mean, there, there's an element of that. I mean, great I am going to, I am going to benefit directly, but I'm hoping that those, those folks will be, you know, we'll be super loyal to them and hopefully they'll be super loyal to us. Right? Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for sharing for that. And, and I'll definitely link in the show notes to the hiring page for people can click on and learn more about that. Yeah. Like if you guys can spread the word that, that would be huge, but I want to get back to your, I want to get back to your question. You asked me if I roll, I have a, a brown belt in Brazilian jujitsu. I've been rolling since 2009. Yes. I started in jujitsu, by the way, a lot of tech folks in, like in Seattle mm -hmm. is a huge like community. Like when I was, when I was shuttling up to Seattle every week, even like pre COVID obviously, but there were some great little clubs out there. You guys have a 10th planet out there across the lake in Bellevue. There's some okay. really good places to roll. But going back to the three pillars, the second pillar is cybersecurity. So we are going to provide a set of autonomous services to help secure customer clusters, make sure they're following all the best practices, make sure that their container images don't have vulnerabilities. And there's a whole suite of people do just a bad job of cybersecurity in the cloud in general. And I have my own theories as to why that is. But 
we're going to try to help customers there. And the third pillar is disaster recovery and high availability. So how can you make sure that your application stays up? I'll give you an example. If you have your entire game hosted in AWS and that in a specific region, and that region goes down, your game's offline. Could be offline for two hours, three hours. What does that mean? How long does it take for players to get back to you? That could be a two, three day ramp back time, mm-hmm. depending, like, cause it's a chicken and egg, right? Like if you have no one to play with, you're going to leave. Yeah. Yeah. You can, I don't know, you can jump servers somewhere super far that kills your latency, right? Which again, is going to ultimately make people drop off as well. hundred percent. So mm-hmm. there's three pillars. The first one we're starting with is autonomous cost management. The second one is autonomous cybersecurity. And the third one is disaster recovery, high availability. Great spaces that are going to be, you know, there's no signs of slowdown anytime soon, right? The more companies that come online and pretty much, I can't imagine a space that isn't, right? Like they, they, these are things that they should be worrying about or should have a plan for. I don't care who you are really, right? Like keeping costs low, keeping your information and data secure, and then having backup recovery plans if and when things do go bad. People ask me sometimes, hey, Leon, what's your TAM? It stands for Total Addressable Market. It's kind of a, a measurement people use to decide whether your opportunity is worth investing in. Is the opportunity big enough? Right? And, mm-hmm. and so my, um, you know, my answer is my, my total addressable market is the entire cloud. Like there's literally, Jeez. everyone is going to be deploying with containers. Everyone is going to be using Kubernetes. So yeah, we'll, we have a lot of people to help in the future. I know your role, right? You founded the company. I would love to know what a typical day looks like for you as, uh, do you go by founder, CTO, CEO? What do you go by? My title on Slack, I kid you not, is chief plumber and sandwich maker. (laughs) I haven't heard that one, Leon. Chief plumber and sandwich maker. I get the plumbing part. Well, like, look, you're in a startup and someone clogs the toilet. Someone's going to unclog the toilet. And as often it's going to be one of the founders is not. So you wear all hat in a startup, right? And that's yeah. the cool part about being in a startup. You get to do everything. Uh, sometimes it's distracting, but it's so immensely fulfilling. It's hard and most people fail and every venture is bound to fail. Like, so like not something that the same people usually try to do, mm-hmm. but, but when you're there and you can get some inkling of success, it's like the greatest feeling. And Johnny, you asked me what my day is. Most of my day is talking to customers. Mm-hmm. That's 80% of my day, getting their feedback, helping them. Everybody is in support in our organization. And that's the way I believe it has to be. So customer connection is the most important thing for me. And then very rarely telling our teams what to do because I hired really smart people, like they know what they got to do, right? So it's basically walking the, making sure that the vision is, is being properly represented in our short-term, medium-term, long-term roadmaps. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes they'll bring me into a technical conversation where they could use some gray hair opinion. And I'm happy to chime in when that's the case. It makes me feel <laughs> good. I haven't heard the term gray hair opinion. I, I have the image right away, but what does that mean to you? Gray hair opinion. It means a dude who's over, I'm almost 50, right? So like in software engineering community, that that's dinosaur status, uh-huh. right? Look, they don't let me code anymore. And these <laughs> guys are way better than me anyway, but it's nice when we can have a good technical conversation and then I can bring up a learning from my past that is helpful to them in a go forward situation. Which I'm sure happens, happens regularly. Hopefully. Probably more than I'm admitting, but yes. There you go. Development, engineering, problem solving. 
you've seen your share. You've been in uh, many of those roles. You hire a bunch. What separates a great engineer from an average engineer? When you're looking at candidates, what helps separate them? It's a really simple. I mean, it's a great, profound question. My answer is going to be trivially simple. It's the reason that they're doing it, right? So I start the conversation with, don't tell me about your background. Tell me what draws you to computer science. What draws you to this field, right? And if the answer was, well, I had a whole bunch of choices in university. I could have been a doctor or a lawyer. And I talked to my parents and they said, oh, well, software engineering is super lucrative. That's just the wrong reason. Yeah, <laughs> it is lucrative. I'm in it for the money, yeah. That's the worst reason. Because last thing you want to do is be sitting in front of the screen super bored for a paycheck. Why would anyone do that in a world of so much opportunity where you can just follow your passion? I don't Indeed. understand why people do boring jobs. Agreed. I don't know what you've seen over the past couple of years, but I think this pandemic thing was a big wake-up call, right? Where people, I don't know what happened, right? Where either forced to leave jobs or couldn't go into an office and therefore had the chance to finally take a step back and reassess and be like, wait a second, you know, like I can do other things or, or look at how much more happier I am now that I'm not going to an office, right? Like, gee, you know, let me reassess my priorities and, and spending time with the family and things like that. So I'm with you, you know, if it hasn't hit you yet after this pandemic, why would you spend time doing something that doesn't bring you absolute satisfaction or joy? Yeah. Like with this gig economy, you can literally like be anywhere. It's like the, have you ever read the four hour work week? Yes. Yeah. Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss way before his time wrote that thing, but yeah. he's like, absolutely true. Like, you know, earn in us dollars and, and spend them in yen or wh wherever he was at the time in Brazil. I don't remember where he was, but like that dude had the, the right idea. I, I remember this really interesting story. It was uh, this e-commerce company at the time. And I read the four hour work week and I sent it to my whole team. And the chief operating officer, she's really like, hmm, very skeptical older lady. Sure. And, Dinosaur, and, right? and she sent the CEO, like, look what Leon is sending his team. He only wants them to work four hours a week. <laughs> I'm like, you completely missed the point of that. Yeah, of that yeah because there's so many great takeaways in there, right? Of like learning to scale and, and automate and not be a bottleneck, right? And hire people to do things so that you freeze up your time to make bigger impact elsewhere, right? Like a lot, those are the ones that I still remember anyway. Yeah, like super, that was a super impactful book. But back to your question, like what, what do you, tr I try to figure out where that person's passion lies. Like I know when I open the ID integrated development environment for you guys, it might be Unity. For me, it's Visual Studio Code. Like, and I, and I create code. That's, a, that's a artwork for me. Mm -hmm. And I don't want my artwork to be rushed. I hate it when I have to code against the deadline. Yeah. Like I, sometimes the colors on the, have to take the time getting on the canvas. My wife super laughs at me when I talk about coding like art, but I truly believe it. It's like my, it's my artistic expression. When I produce an algorithm that works efficiently, it's like no, no better feeling. And I need to see that in a candidate. I need to see some similar spark of passion and they'll, you, it'll usually come out when they tell me about a hard algorithmic problem that they've solved or a hard distributed computing problem that they solve or a hard machine learning problem that they solve, their eyes light up, that spark shows, and then I understand that there's a culture fit. A 
good portion of this show is spent educating and preparing other people to enter development and things to be prepared for, things to keep in mind. And, and that's a great one to call out is know why this role, why you're applying to this company, why you do this thing. Be prepared to talk about either the hardest thing you had to solve or the thing you're most proud of having to solve, right? I think those are common ones. Yeah. And those are standard interviewing questions. And I used to think that it was like having a formal computer science education was a big deal for me because like you get to like the nuts and bolts and you go through all of that, the grind of learning the lower level. Like we talked about it early on, right? I interviewed a guy maybe two weeks ago, great guy. And we hit it off on all the technical side and on the culture fit. And I looked at his resume and I'm like, yeah. Isn't, I don't, I'm not going to say his name, but like, I'll just use John. Hey, John, where did you get your computer science education? He's like, no, Leon, I'm self-taught. I never went to college. Wow. Like, fantastic. Like I could carry a super technical conversation with you. And we really geeked out on a bunch of these cloud concepts and you never went to school for it. Like congrats for saving four years of your life. Cause I couldn't do it. Right. So, you know, hats off to those guys who can teach themselves because it's a super impressive skill. I love it too. And, and kudos to you for not catching that on the resume and instantly kind of throwing it aside, right? But, oh, university's not even in here. I don't recognize it. Okay, pass or next. And then at the same token, I, yesterday I interviewed a PhD student and like 15 minutes into the conversation, I'm like, dude, this is not going well. This is not going to be a, oh, like a call. like super smart academically, but didn't yeah. have the drive, didn't have the passion. The few graduate students I know, depending on where they are, right, are either ready to be done or some people just fit better in the academic world, I guess. Yeah, that, you, you nailed it. Just just a better fit. I have yet to have direct reports. I'm in the IC route. I think one day in the not too distant future, I can see myself going into management. You had this amazing insight and I want you to share it here. It's like, how do you gauge your team, right? Or the people that you report to? Because I think a lot of people fall into the trap or managers fall into the trap of keeping the status quo, keeping everybody happy. And I don't think that's the best way to approach the team for long-term success. And few other places have mechanisms built in to kind of constantly keep people sharp and making sure they have stat ranking or whatever. Yeah, performing. Yeah. Yeah, it's like per through performance reviews, right? And like, I think the extreme example of some old school thinking is Jack Walsh is the CEO of G. He had a, a rule every year, the bottom 10% of the sales team gets fired. Doesn't matter how well they did. That's it. That's it. And I don't believe in that, but that is an extreme case of performance management. But I think the reference you were talking to is if you're unsure about a team member, if you're unsure about someone on your team whether they're performing or not, there's an instant litmus test. You can ask yourself to get, it's a gut check. And the gut check is if that guy or girl walked into your office tomorrow and said, I quit, what would your instant emotional reaction be? Would it be one of relief or would it be one of anxiety? And if the answer is one of relief, it means you probably have to work that person into a performance improvement plan. Mm -hmm. And then if that performance doesn't improve, then you got to let them go because it's not for the rest of the team. If you don't have people equally pulling their weight, and putting in the same sweat equity and labor, labor of love, then you're going to have other team members that get disgruntled and say, ah, fuck it. Like if Leanne doesn't care, why am I trying so hard? Yeah. And then everyone's performance suffers. And that's a rotten apple in a barrel. Mm -hmm. If you're going to manage performance, you got to do it proactively. I have a policy of doing performance reviews often and quickly, meaning every six months we do a review of everybody's performance on the team. 
And we don't only do that review to give people a pat on the back. We do that to compensate them. So bonus, stock options, pay bump, whatever that is, is like the recognition of good performance has to come with a reward. And then the opposite is true. Like if you're not doing well, we're going to figure out what the plan is to get you performing. And many people turn around and do really well after that, but some people don't. And you're actually continuously improving your team that way. And then just another, like my tidbit on performance, I don't believe in spreading. Like if you had like 10,000 bucks in budget to give pay raises this quarter, right? I think the worst thing you can do is just kind of spread that around equally across the team. That's kind of the worst version of communism for me. Like <laughs> the, the people who work the hardest and have shown results deserve the bulk of the gain. That doesn't mean next six months or the next quarter, other folks don't step up and, and, mm -hmm. and get rewarded. It's like the term peanut butter, spreading peanut butter. It's just the worst approach, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I often red flag managers that do that kind of peanut butter approach to compensation. Yeah, let that be a, a strong takeaway. It's a great conversation piece as well. It's the same problem of you have that, you could call it an underperformer, but really it's like not performing to the same degree as everyone else on the team and kind of dragging the team down. It's the same way of saying like, hey, as a team, we'll all bask in the gain or the excess of the rewards, but it can be much more inspirational, motivating that you do recognize the standout performers, right? Because then everybody has a bar to reach towards to be like, oh, you know, look at so-and-so. They did this. I saw their contributions. I saw them putting in the time or fixing these really big problems when they didn't have to. And I see them get recognized. Good for them. I want to see what that feels like. I want to get there. I want to be in that, in the, that shoe come next performance, right? And I bet you that's going to prompt a one-on-one -on -one or be like, hey, man, you know, if, if it hasn't already, if, if for whatever reason, right, they haven't realized that to, to come at your door and be like, how can I get there, right? Like, or, or, hey, I see these things that I'm working on. Will this move the needle, right? Is this the best way to spend my time or elsewhere, right? Like, I think it's just all positive conversations to be had after something like that. You nailed it. And at least it's out in the open. Like everyone knows exactly what to expect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not invisible. That kills me. I, I know there's a popular conversation out there in the world of like pay transparency, but more than that, right, is is transparency of like company values and what do we reward and what are we looking for, right? Like, hey, we hired you because you fit the culture and we believe you can deliver these things, right? And it's, so if, if everybody's kind of at the same benchmark, right, and then there's people that can still overachieve and, and, and jump across the room of everybody's a, a genius. I think that just makes everybody sharper and keeps everybody pushing. You've been in tech for a while and, and I've been in it for a bit and there's no end or shortage of new opportunities and new things to conquer or to learn about. And it's exciting, man. It, it always surprises me to run into someone that tells me, oh, I've, I've done it all or I'm not interested in something, you know, I don't know, just it, it loses that, that zest or that spark to keep learning or keep trying new things. Yeah, it's actually during interviews when I'm kind of interviewing for culture fit, you know, I like to ask why, like, hey, you designed the system this way. Why? Mm -hmm. Right. Sometimes the answer will be, I don't know. The decision was made before me, or mm -hmm. I don't know. My manager made that decision or the senior engineer made the position. I'm like, does this sound like a good idea to you? And does this sound like a good idea to me? So why wouldn't you ask the question? And if that individual didn't ask the question, that tells me something about their character. I don't need 
a yes man. I want people to be passionate about their positions. If they think something is wrong, I want them to speak up. Yeah. They haven't spoken up in the past. The chances of them speaking up on the, you know, the probability that we have a good culture fit is lower. Totally. This is something that I've come across over the past month or so that was kind of surprising to me. I think I fall into the quadrant of agreeable, you know, the agreeable as opposed to disagreeable. And there's a metric there that says that the people that tend to rise up the ladder or in positions of power or management or whatever are those disagreeable people, right? And, you know, there's definitely levels of tact in how you voice your disagreements. Something that that I realized, I definitely have room to ask why or challenge when something doesn't make sense to me, as opposed to, like you said, yes, agree. Okay, this is the decision. Cool. I'll rock with it. I'm the opposite, John. I'm a total shit disturber. Ah, like, that's the way. I, I rattled the cage. Like if something doesn't make sense to me. So we have this pretty good cultural core value. I didn't invent it. It kind of came from Amazon and AWS, but it's like the basic essence is disagree and commit. Like you and I mm-hmm. can have like a vehement disagreement about a tech decision, right? Like we'll hear each other out. Someone's got to break that tie. Either we agree, like we pick yep. a direction. Somehow we pick a direction and we go. And then there's no backstabbing. We both go a hundred percent in. And I, I just had this with my CEO. Like I, we, we had a nice blowout, yelled at each other for an hour. And then at the end of that, sat down, had a nice glass of wine. I said, all right, Yuri, here are all the reasons why I disagree with this decision. But if you're going to make it, you're the CEO of the company. I'm a hundred percent behind you. And I'm going to make that decision so it's successful. That's the only way to roll, in my opinion. Like you can't bottle it all up, but you also can't have sabotage in the company. Yeah. You've got to stand behind a decision 100%. I appreciate that. I appreciate you reminding me of those Amazon leadership principles. They are, there was 14 when I was there. And I think they added two after I left. What year were you there? 2018 to 2020. In Seattle, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that was, I think since then, they've added two along the lines of like good citizen, right? Like I think like long-term sustainability or like, green energy or something like that. I, I'd have to look them up. So there are way too many of them. Like I have four core principles and those are the only things that we kind of guide our decisions. Customer obsession, cust- you know, yeah. figure out the lot. customer journey, all else will follow. The second one is taking ownership and leading by example. The third one is developing yourself, your team and hiring the best people around you. And the fourth is embracing change, understanding that change is constantly occurring have respectful discord, respectful conversations. But once you get to a point, disagree and commit. Boom. Those are solid. Custom obsession, ownership, hire and develop the best and disagree and commit. That's one that I can do some more reps on. I'm good at committing. I got to be better about voicing my disagreements when I have them, right? Like I think everybody can identify when they get the little knots in their guts something that makes them kind of bat an eye of like not quite aligned. And that could be for a few reasons, right? They could be, you may not be understanding something. There could be a disconnect, but the worst thing you could do, and I'm guilty of it, is not raising the question, right? Hey, yeah. hey hold on. Can we step back? What do you mean by that? Or, you know, what does that entail? Things like that. In my tech discussions with my team, like if we're getting to a kind of a critical place, and I think they're being too quiet. I picked the scab. Like, what's wrong with you guys? Should I have your coffee? Mm. Like, if I'm right, we're definitely in the wrong path. You know, like, I need you guys to speak up. I pick the scab and I often get the reaction I need out of that. 
Like, you know, maybe there's a case where everything is logically laid out and there's no reason to have that debate, but often I know what the other side of the argument is, right? It's not that I want an argument. I want these guys to learn to, like, if I get hit by a bus, they need to be critical thinkers, each and every one of them. And like, that's the legacy, right? Making sure that that I get hit by a bus or if I go, if I get shipwrecked for our work week, the litmus test is you come back and your company's running, but thriving. Yeah. You know that you've done the right thing in terms of your organization. Heck yeah. I, I forget what I read. It was some book that was referred to me about leadership or whatever. And, it, and it's kind of like you can go down the history of companies that were built to succeed after their founder or CEO stepped down or companies that crash and burn, right? As soon as the one person wasn't there to keep the ship together, it all crashed and burned. So that's it, right? Like build the culture that can sustain itself after you're gone or not available or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. I got this great piece of career advice early on in my life. It's a good friend of mine, Rick Simpson, he bestowed it on me. He runs a great little company called Snow Commerce right now. They're just killing it. But he said to me, work to work yourself out of a job and you'll never be out of a job. Work to work yourself off out of a job and you will never be out of a job. Yeah. Which is basically constantly get yourself out of the path of execution. But Mm -hmm. as that happens, the scope of responsibility increases, your company grows, customer side, like, you know, everything is kind of ballooning around you and you have to plan for that next level of scale as a leader. That's a great blueprint to start out, right? If you're kind of wondering like, hey, where can I go? How do I grow? Or, hey, I have to write a three-year plan, five-year plan. That's a great starting point if you're not already thinking that way to help you kind of flesh that. P-R-F-A-Q of your life or something. Anyone that shows me a three-year plan and I'll call bullshit before I read it. Nobody knows what three <laughs> years looks like in the future. Tell me about it. Yeah. I struggle. I was asked at my last job at EA, hey, write a three-year plan. And I was pretty good about writing kind of a one-year plan, right? I'm like, hey, a year from now, this is what I hope to have contributed to or be working on. The three-year, the five-year was, I don't know why it was daunting, right? Like even, even think about it like working backwards, right? If we're here, some hit game on this technology using these systems and then working back. But even that was like too daunting, right? Or, or unrealistic, right? It just becomes fluff. Like the whole middle part of that sandwich just becomes fluff that it's not going to happen. John, where was your favorite gaming environment to work in, like as a company? You're going to put me on the spot, but in the spirit of honesty, that's been an easy one. I've only been, what, six places, Epic being the current one. And and I'm too young at Epic, right? I've only been there, what, like three months, if that. And I'm still trying to get my feet and foundation underneath me. Awesome culture, super smart people, learning a lot. Fortnite's an insane tanker going at like Lamborghini speeds. But prior to Epic, I was at EA. And EA is one of the oldest game developers in the business, right? Still going today. And they're public and all that. And... If you were on the outside listening, there's nothing but terror stories of like EA being this conglomerate and corporate behemoth and like no soul, and no creativity, blah, blah, blah. But on the inside, I had a blast. I had a blast. I, I, I really benefited in a way that they've learned where all these other brand new startups and, and game developers are still trying to figure out how to get to this like sustainable place of game development. I believe it. I, I had a similar experience at Oracle. Like when I joined Oracle through the acquisition, you were like, oh, they're going to suck your soul. It's going to be the death of you creatively. And I was like worried. And like I, I got there and it was a little weird at first because I've never been at a big company and 
I'm sure a lot of people didn't like the fact that I was asking, why do we do things this way so many times? Like, Hey, this sounds ridiculous. Why are we doing this? <laughs> yeah. And then some of those things I changed. I was like privileged, right? I had like a vice president position. So like I, I had a little bit of like say, and then I got a chance to like really work through the system and build some new products. I got the chance to meet Larry Ellison. That dude yeah, is yeah, like yeah. super sharp, Like I was blown away and I was riffing on some, some next level ideas with him. And we were like talking about how Amazon would react and so forth. And I, I had like nothing but like an amazing, like all the politics and garbage aside. Sure. That it's there in every big company. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, I haven't been in a lot of big companies, but I can imagine it's like that everywhere. But the experience was like cool. Like I wouldn't trade that experience for anything because it like gave me a whole new dimension to what a corporate life actually looks like being able to exercise your creativity, even inside of a big company and not being that cog in the wheel. IBM was kind of that first big business role that you had. And then from then on, you went full entrepreneur. Yeah, I, I was recruited to IBM. Like there were two positions out of like 300 applicants. I have no idea how I made it, <laughs> <laughs> but I got recruited to IBM, like the Toronto laboratory in a hardcore engineering position as an intern. And I spent 18 months there. It's kind of boring at sometimes, but like I steered my way onto a team that was building like this e-commerce platform before e-commerce existed. And oh. like, I was like, I was one of the like six engineers on that team and it was like destined to fail, but it succeeded. And we launched like this company, LL Bean, which is like a big cataloger in the U S online before anybody, like it was very few people doing transactions online. And all of a sudden the whole division blew up. It got funding from inside. I remember Lou Gerstner. So like. It was also a very unusual experience in that I was 19 years old and I got a chance yeah. to experience like a startup within a massive company. Right. And then the entrepreneurial spirit took over. As soon as I got it, started getting guardrails, like, oh, you can't do this mm. or you can't do that. I'm like, yeah, I'm out of here. I'll just do my own thing. That's usually the nail in the coffin or the sign, right? Of like, I don't know, what do you call it? Bureaucracy, Bu bureaucracy for the sake of bureaucracy, right? Like, hey, this is the process and you have to go through these checks and balances to make a big change as opposed to, hey, this could really help. And I'm interested and passionate about it. I'm going to take ownership, you know, let me, let me do this, right? I'm, I'm making the same money anyway. I'm just going to bring you more money. And people just stop that because it's not by the book or something. Yeah. I remember like I had a mentor at IBM, like the guys like you still keep in touch with him. Like he, he was the lab director and big executive at IBM. And like he, when I wanted to leave, he's like, oh, you're leaving too early. Just hang out. I'll introduce you to all the right VCs in the Valley. I'm like, dude, I already got the funding. I'm out. But it was interesting. I was more of a shit disturber than I think I realized. Like, for example, I had like a fish tank in the office. That was, there was no pet policy in the office. I just brought a fish tank one uh, weekend. <laughs> like my wife bought it for me as a present. Okay. And, and yes. then like on the exit interview, the HR person was like, you don't to have any idea how much trouble that fish tank caught. Like we had meetings about like whether we could let you keep your fish tank or not, because it was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you see, well, you're just validating my, my move here. Yeah. Yeah. We had meetings about something that doesn't affect anybody, but you and you didn't know about it. Yeah. So good exposure at IBM and enough of a, of a motivator to go do your own thing. So a vital part in the path. Yeah. John, have you ever read the rich dad, poor dad? I think I read that in my like mid twenties. Yeah, me too. Yeah. But there was, there was one lesson that stuck like 
I, I don't know if I agree with everything that that guy says, like Robert, uh-huh. Robert Kiyosaki, I think is his name, but yes, the book is a must read for like, if you're just getting out of college, you don't know anything about Marty. That's the time. The, go read the book. It's going to save you a lot of credit card pain. Right. But one thing he said, like, you know, when you come out of school, you don't know what problems to solve, right? Like you have no idea what the issues in the industry are. So go work for someone, go work for Xerox. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Go work for someone. Not because for a paycheck, go work for someone to understand the industry that you're, that you're interested and passionate about where the actual friction and problems are. And that's what I did at IBM. I discovered e-commerce. I'm like, this is bad. The way e-commerce is being delivered in the shrimp wrap software is terrible. It needs to be in the cloud on demand. You know, and I went and did that, but like, I didn't have any idea of how to solve it until I felt an actual friction point. I like to put it as like. Go get your real world education on someone else's dime, right? Like go in to see how companies can be better by doing, going to someone else's company, right? And being like, okay, if I built my own company, this is how I would do it differently. That's basically it, right? And it may not be that you build, when I build my own company, but it's like, if I built a product to solve this mm-hmm. problem, I would do it differently. Start at the product level or the feature level. Leon. I look up at the time and the time has flown the F by, but if you're ready to get into what I like to call the final round, you know, I'm a big fighting game player and the final round consists of short questions, whatever comes to mind and we blow through them. Perfect. Let's do it. Can you tell me the last game that you or your children finished? Saw the credits roll. Planet Coaster with my nine-year-old daughter. It's a sim theme parks, amusement parks. Oh, okay, okay. A roller coaster tycoon type thing. Yeah, but more realistic. What is the last book you read? Oh, I'm constantly reading. So I'm currently reading the Wheel of Time series. It's a massive epic. I'm thinking on book six, but it's called Crown of Swords. What's the setting? So have you ever heard of the Wheel of Time? It's the Robert Jordan. He's passed away now, but he's like this epic author. This is Amazon has has released it as as a series now on Amazon Prime. Ah, okay. So it's based on this kind of Eastern belief that time is a circle and that ages come and go, but basically history repeats itself. And it takes you through kind of this epic good versus evil. It's very similar to kind of the genre of Lord of the Rings or even Game of Thrones. So it's fantasy. It is fantasy. And that's my kind of number one nonfiction genre is I love reading fantasy. Yeah. Something that's not the day to day, which you see around you. Yeah. So I have, I I always in parallel one book, either audio or reading one book that's nonfiction and one book that's fiction. And I kind of read two in parallel. I was going to ask, what's your format of choice or what device do you read on? I listen on audible and I read on Kindle. Yeah. The e-paper. It's my, my go-to as well. I did want to give a shout out to the nonfiction and book that I'm reading. So. There's Ray Dalio is a famous kind of investor, hedge fund yeah. manager. He recently published a book and an accompanying kind of YouTube educational video that takes you through the whole book in about an hour. It's called yeah. The Changing World Order is the name of the book. Great nonfiction read. And it's basically about the rise and fall of empires, default currencies, where he thinks we are in terms of where the U.S. empire is as its status quo, like leader in the world in terms of it, it being the, the peg currency of choice. Thank you for that call out. I had no idea there was a new Ray Dahlia out there. And this topic has been at my forefront anyway, as I'm just digging into currency, World Bank, crypto, the fact that we're not backed by gold, things like this, right? So this is 
really on brand for where my thinking is these days. So thank you for that call out. Yeah. You know, who does a really good job of explaining like the philosophy of money, how it was created is Sapiens, a short history of mankind. Mm. And I always mispronounce the author's name. His name is Yuval Harari. And if you haven't read Sapiens, it's like a must read modern classic. If you could have three dinner guests dead or alive, who would they be? There's so many people that I would love to talk to. I think Stephen Hawking's would be one that, uh, I, that I would love to speak to. Albert Einstein would be one that I would love to speak to. And then from Russian history, there's a character named Rasputin who was like a priest. Oh. And it, yeah, I would love to understand what was going through that crazy dude's mind. I would love to speak to Ayn Rand. Where do I know that name? She wrote the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. She's like Atlas Shrugged. There we go. Yeah, she like her philosophies. Very kind of libertarian philosophies are a lot a cornerstone. A lot of beliefs of the Tea Party and the Republican Party. But regardless, I think they've all been warped. But like, if you have ever read Atlas Shrugged, it is quite an interesting piece of perspective on on world and liberty. Another good one. Boom! I'll give I'll give you that fourth one. Thank you, man. I know I broke the rules. Oh, good. I love it, man. Shit disturbing and pushing the boundaries. That's what we're about on here. From what you see of the industry, what is one of the things that you think we can do better? Gaming industry or tech in general? The one that you're most familiar with. Yeah. So I'm most familiar with cloud. And I think that we can do a lot better in letting customers of the cloud move their data around without being locked in. So everyone is busy trying to lock everybody out of and gain a competitive advantage instead of having open interoperability and just letting customers move freely. And guys, there's plenty of business, like stop it with this nonsense and let people consume these cloud resources naturally without artificial vendor lock-in. I like that one, right? It's our data. We should have free unrestricted access to it. And it should not be hard for me to do what I want with it. That is to migrate it somewhere else, right? Yeah. And look, uh, charge a fee, charge a reasonable fee, but don't yeah. charge 30 times the cost to move data. That's just ridiculous. And that's the number. It's, I've done the math. It's 30X. 30X. Jeez. And that's so arbitrary, right? That's like so made up to be like, hey, this is how we're going to. I don't think it's arbitrary. I think it's deliberate. It's like we, you know, it's Hotel California. Check mm. in anytime you like. But yeah, you're never leaving. All right, Leon, we are at the final question. And that is, if you had a good time falling out of the play area, is there anyone that you would nominate to fall out of the play area behind you? That could be a mentor, colleague, someone you think has an interesting, compelling story for any one of the, our listeners. That's a great question. I have a great, I, I don't know if she, she would do it, but there's a, someone that, that I took up as a ment while I was at Oracle, I was introduced to her name as Patty Azzarillo. I can make an introduction to you on LinkedIn. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. She, she is a corporate coach. She was like a former marketing executive at HP and she's done a whole bunch of, she's got, she written two books. One's called move and the other is called rise on how to deal with all of the pressing priorities of, of kind of delivering and how to juggle those priorities and ensure that you're like moving forward as opposed to spinning your wheels, so to speak. She was a fantastic mentor for me. I would love, if you can, if you can grab her, she'd be yeah. a great guest. I appreciate an introduction and all we can do is try. Absolutely. Leon, we made it, made it to the end. 
Thank you immensely. I learned a lot. I can't wait for my listeners to get a load of this and learn about the things Cast AI is up to, learn about the different ways that cloud is doing things and some of the things they should consider for their business, right? It could be just the way that they handle their infrastructure internally or for their players. And on top of that, there's just a lot of cool ideas around the space of development in general. And most importantly, some of the things Cast AI is doing for employment for the people in Ukraine. 100%. And we'll get those links over to you, John, so you can link them up. Absolutely. Do you have any last words before we go? Yeah, John, great questions. And I love exploring the gaming space with you. And thank you for your insight. Fantastic, Leon. Hey, man, I'll stay in touch for sure. Seeing what you guys do as you move forward in making the cloud a more affordable, safer, and better place to do business. Better place to do There we go. <laughs> there we go. Awesome. We will stay in touch. Take care. Thank you, John. Talk about falling out of the play area. Technically, Leon has never shipped a game, which is the key criteria of all the guests that come on the show. But he has developed games and has shipped products that game devs can use. Developers are developers. A few parts resonated with me. Six-month performance reviews. Keeping that conversation more frequent and transparent and rewarding outstanding contributions to the business. Before Amazon, I witnessed what happens all too often at studios who are fighting to finish and ship a game and drop everything that doesn't contribute to that, and are super quick to sacrifice employee development and investment. You've all heard me preach about bi-monthly, if not weekly one-on-ones, both with your manager, your reports, and also your skip level. Another key piece of that equation is the biannual, if not quarterly, performance review conversation. These naturally extend into one another where you're constantly having that conversation of the impact you're either making, not making, or should be making to get you to the next level where you can better contribute to the business and the team. How many of y'all are up on your cloud spending and keeping a close, careful eye on that? I don't know about you, but I've never been a fan of not keeping my spend in check and making sure if there are any savings to be had that I take advantage of them. I thank my partner in life, Catherine, where... Yeah, I'm much healthier financially than I was 10 years ago living in California. And a huge part of that is keeping tabs on interest I'm paying, taking advantage of all bundles, subscriptions, bulk or wholesale purchasing that I can make to save a dollar. So with that, there's a promo link for out-of-play area listeners in the show notes to claim a cast AI offer specifically for out-of-play area listeners. I also decided to look into like, hey, do any people in games actually use Kubernetes for their backend? And I found an interesting article that specifically talks about Unity game backends built on Kubernetes. So curious if uh, that helps you at all. Any mileage you get out of that, please let me know. Super interested. As far as I know, when I was working at Amazon, I never really knew of anybody strictly deploying through Kubernetes. On episode 37 of the Game Developers Podcast, Out of Play Area, we'll sit down with Chris Cole, a dear friend and a senior technical artist currently working for Amazon Game Studios and whom first started alongside me back in 2007 a full year before the dawn of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Chris Nolan's Dark Knight, a time where you may be recall everybody singing or listening to Rihanna's Umbrella. Chris Cole and I both started at Midway Austin. That episode is set to debut in a couple of weeks on Monday, July the 18th. Make sure to follow us so that you don't miss out on that episode.
Thank you for listening, devs. If you found this episode informative, I ask that you pay a link forward to a developer to help grow our listener community. If you're a game developer with a story you think could help a fellow dev out, please go to outofplayarea.com and click on the Calendly link at the top to meet up. Please make sure you get approval from your manager or studio's PR or HR team beforehand. Out of Play Area, the Game Developers Podcast, releases new episodes every other Monday on all the major players, including Spotify, Apple, and Google. Please make sure to follow us to see what developer falls out of the play area next time. I'm your host, John Diaz. Until next time, devs, stay strong, stay true, stay dangerous. Flight attendants, prepare for takeoff. Cabin crew, please take your seats. We are now about to enter the out-of-play area. Yeah. If you can't reach me, I apologize. Since we out of play, I never compromise. John D, NYC, know we got the vibe. Make sure you hit that follow when you hit subscribe. Out-of-play area podcast. Out-of-play, out-of-play area podcast. Something for the game devs Stay strong, stay true, and stay dangerous Had to switch the styles for a challenge Best thing out of Harlem since Young Miles Morales A new podcast comes to provide the balance With game dev veterans and rising talents Out of play Welcome to the Out of Play Area Podcast A show by game devs for game devs With no ads, no BS, just the real Welcome to the Out of Play Area Let's go.